The best way to have one's project fail is to not plan. In this series, a lesson from Nehemiah, how to complete a project, plan, or idea successfully, we'll look at what Nehemiah did for his project and how we can apply similar principles to our own endeavors. Let's jump in. There's so much in Nehemiah, and we touched on a lot of it. And as I said uh, weeks ago, there will be copies of, of the entire message for everyone tonight. We'll pass it out at the end of the service, but all of the messages are here, and uh, including tonight. And tonight is kind of a consolidated look at what we've been studying. Nehemiah, is, uh, as we know, is one of a number of narratives in the Bible that present us, the Christian reader today, with a model plan of action that can be used to advance an idea, program, or project to successful completion. And previously, we identified the 12 steps in this model plan. And this is a copy of, of that. So these are the steps by themselves. So you, you have them. 12 steps we identified, or at least I identified from the story of Nehemiah, that uh, can be applied to any plan, idea, or project that you want to execute and see through completion successfully. Now, this plan was key to the rebuilding of the Wall of Jerusalem. This was a mission project conceived by Nehemiah while he served as cupbearer to the king in far-off Persia. And uh, you remember that uh, some years before, the Jews had been taken into captivity into Babylonia uh, when uh, Jerusalem was defeated by the Babylonian king. Uh, I think this was in about 597 B.C., I don't have those dates in front of me. Uh, and, uh, and later, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persian king Cyrus. And Cyrus uh, was more uh, lenient toward uh, the Jews. And he defeated the Babylonians in, in 539 BC. And the year later, in 538 BC, he issued a decree that allowed Jews to begin to return to uh, their homeland, Judea, Jerusalem. Now, getting back to the model plan, this is one that we can employ in any mission or project we might undertake, and this is why it's useful for us today. Nehemiah's story also causes us to examine, to see what areas in our spiritual, in our spiritual wall that may need rebuilding, repair, or restoration. And we should really think about this seriously, and I'll come back to this later. For example, rebuilding could be needed in our prayer wall, in our faith wall, our love wall, our prayer wall, our study wall, our knowledge wall. And this is just to mention a few. So apart from the model plan of action we extracted from Nehemiah and we identified in the 12, step, in the 12 steps, what else? does the story of Nehemiah and his accomplishments tell us today about how we should conduct ourselves? And this is what we're going to talk about today. What else does it tell us or show us or give us that would be helpful for us today 
in terms of how we conduct ourselves. And Jesus gives us an answer, and I gave this scripture to you last week at the very end. He gives us an answer to what our reaction might be when we see a good example, or I say an example of good. And Jesus says in Luke 10, 37, you might want to go there. In fact, you should go there because we're going to look at this story. This is a story of the Good Samaritan. And most of us know about this story. I have some uh, uh, semblance of understanding of it. What Jesus says in Luke 10, 37 is go and do likewise. In other words, what do we do with, with a, a story or a model set by someone like Nehemiah? We go and do likewise when such an occasion arises. That is an occasion of need where you see a need that needs to be addressed and so forth. Uh, now, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is asked by a certain lawyer. Are you at Luke? In fact, let me go, let me, let me go there. Because this sets the stage for what we're going to talk about uh, tonight. This is Luke... Uh, 10, let's, let's go, it starts at Luke uh, 10, 25. In fact, let me just read it from here. And it says, and behold, a certain lawyer, and it would be a lawyer, <laughs> stood up, because they're always trying to be smart. Uh, uh, sir, uh, sir, uh, some are, some are, surely. Others are smart Alex. And some are like my father, his description they are TD smart. And you figure out what TD is. <laughs> 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, testing Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in 26, uh, Jesus said to him, what is, written in, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, this is a lawyer answering Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. 29. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to show how smart he was. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, and this is where he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we're going to read it right here. And Jesus says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, that is the man who had been wounded, he passed by on the other side. In other words, he went on the other side and just left him there. Likewise, a Levite. Now, you know, the Levites were, these were the lawgivers. These were the keepers of the law. So they knew how they should treat the people that was in the law. Now, here's a Levite. When he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side as well. I added as well. 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, 
when he departed, that is the good Samaritan, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So Jesus uh, turns to uh, the lawyer and said, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he, the lawyer, said, he who showed mercy on him. He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So what he's saying is that when you see a need, you do what you can to address that need. And uh, by way of quick summary, Jesus is saying that when you see a person or situation in need of help, do like the Good Samaritan. Show compassion. Attempt to address the need. Provide what help you can to make the situation better. And arrange for follow-up, if possible, and needed. In short, where you find a need, imitate the actions taken by the Good Samaritan. Throughout his ministry, Jesus taught by example. In fact, to me, that was his principal way of teaching, whether it was the parables or the... Uh, uh, the way in which he healed people or the questions that he asked and so forth. It was really, it, well, the questions he asked, that was another method. But his primary method in, in, in my take on reading the scriptures is that he taught by example, by what he did. And one of the most prominent of these examples is found in the Gospel of John, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Now, you're familiar with this. Uh, and so go to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13, and we're not, we don't, we're not going to recount that whole story. We're just going to go to this summary scripture. It's John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15. And I'm going to read them together. It says, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he, and he being Jesus, said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you, say, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And of course, Jesus is our great and perfect example that we Christians have as our model to follow. Like the washing of the disciples' feet, the four Gospels reveal numerous examples, as you all know, that Jesus set that are noteworthy for our imitation. These examples of Jesus are seen in his prayer life, his faith, his obedience to the Father, his doing the Father's will, his knowledge of Scripture, his healing ministry, his love of mankind, and of course his ultimate sacrifice of love at Calvary of Calvary for all humanity. Now, it's said by many that it's one thing for Jesus to have done the things that he did, but quite another to expect us mere mortals to do the same. But Jesus has an answer for that in the scripture, and you know what it is, and you can turn to that. You're in John. Go to John 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 12. And his response to anyone saying that, well, maybe we can't do what you do because we're not you. He says this. Are you at John 14, 12? 
where he says, most assuredly, or verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So he's saying that we will be able to do the things that, 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 that he do. And he adds, because I go to my Father. What happens when he goes to the Father? What does the scripture tell us that's going to happen? Exactly. He, when, I, when he goes, you know, remember he says, it's, it's, it's far better that I go. Because I send the, another comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. And what's important about the Holy Spirit is that that's our power source. That's what enables us to do what needs to be done here on earth. The Holy Spirit is the most important person in the earth realm. That's who we work through. That's who inspires us, who directs and guides us. So he's saying that because, what he, I mean, I'm amplifying here. I'm giving my amplification. He's saying, because I go to the, my Father, you will have the Holy Spirit and you'll be able to do these things things and even greater things and of course greater and people say well how could we do any, any greater thing greater uh, uh, can be seen in a number of ways certainly greater in quantity yeah. and so forth uh, Jesus almost dealt one-on-one -on -one. I mean you hear about multitudes but much of his ministry is really one-on-one -on -one. and uh, and we have much I mean, when you think about it, uh, the, the TBN has, has religious broadcasts in practically the whole world. Yes. You, have, you have ministers going, I mean, Apostle Price has been all around the globe, and you have hundreds of ministers who have done likewise, so certainly in quantity. But the other thing is, what, what's, another, what's another area that's different? Well, he, I, I think you just said it uh, because... He was just in that one general area, but now he's, the Holy Spirit allows him to speak, uh, his words to be known in a larger geographic. Absolutely, throughout the world. But the other thing is, just think about it, the miracles and the healings that Jesus did affected the person physically, their physical nature, with the Holy Spirit and with the ability we have now we can lead people to Christ and affect their spirit. And so that's, that's different. See, when Jesus worked on individuals, he was not affecting their spirit. He was affecting them uh, spiritually. He was bringing the demons out of them. He was healing them and so forth. We have the opportunity, and we can all do this because we have the ability. We can affect their, their spirit, their very spirit. Because when, when a person accepts Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, the transformation, the rebirth happens in their spirit and so forth. So in a way, that's greater works and so, and so on. So anyway, I, don't, I didn't mean to spend that much time on that. Uh, so uh, let's move on. So we find many examples throughout Scripture that encourage us either to imitate or follow or do likewise the good example that we see in Jesus and in others. Writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and you can go there. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, if for any reason you don't get these, this is going to all be in the handout uh, that I give you. What's not going to be in the handout is all of this little side commentary that may come to me from time to time up here. But you'll have the gist of the whole message in the handout. In 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, Paul says, 
Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse, verse 12, that's 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, Paul tells Timothy uh, this, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and in purity. Uh, so he's saying that to be an example to the believers, we need to be an example in all of these things because but Jesus is not here. The only vision or sight they have of Jesus or for that matter of God is what they see in us. So let me ask you this. If they see us, will they be better off? <laughs> so, forth. so Paul is saying, be that example so when they see you, they will see the love and compassion, the spirit, the purity and so forth of the Christ. We're also encouraged not to grow weary in following good examples. Go to Hebrew chapter 6, Hebrew chapter 6, verse 12. Hebrew 6, uh, uh, verse 12. And it says, and you're familiar with this, it says, I'm just going to pick it up here where it says, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you imitate you imitate a Paul or a Timothy, and you can imitate an Apostle Price. Because we saw that if you're familiar with his life, through faith and patience, he inherited the promises that he's able to share uh, with us. And Ephesians 5, 1, 2, and you're familiar with this, you can turn to it if you want to, but you know the scripture. It says, we're told, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Now, let's return to the story of Nehemiah. And we see in his actions how he constantly imitated good examples of others we find in the Bible. And in looking at these examples that Nehemiah imitated, we should consider how the examples might apply to us as individuals and to us at Crenshaw Christian Center, New York. Let's look as some of these examples, Nehemiah chose to go and do likewise. Now, this is my extraction of those examples. And saying, my saying that Nehemiah imitated those. Now, he imitated, when I say he imitated them, he may or may not knew about them, but he certainly, in his actions, imitated what these other individuals did. Now, the first one is this. Nehemiah had an understanding of the times, and he knew the great imp importance of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. The wall was vital to the survival and protection of Jerusalem and essential to the city's reemergence as the vital center of Jewish religious life, culture, commerce, and renewed relationship with God. You remember when they were in captivity, they had one of the things that led them to be taken in the captivity was their disobedience to God. They had stopped obeying the laws. They had turned to worship of idols and, and, and so on. And, and, but remember, being almost like nomads all of this time or homeless and stateless and not with the leadership that they should have, 
they really strayed away from the, from the, uh, the laws. And Nehemiah understood, he understood the need to rebuild the uh, homeland where they would have a natural place to assemble. And he understood the need for them to be restored to their understanding of the law. And we didn't get into that and we're not going to get into it. The first six chapters, remember, I told you had to do with the rebuilding of the wall and developing what I call the model plan of action. Versus, I mean, versus chapter seven through the end of Nehemiah deals with the reintroduction of Jewish law to the people. Uh, which so many had gotten away from and so forth. He understood the times. He understood that, that uh, because the Jews were permitted to go back to Jerusalem, that uh, there was a need for stronger leadership in terms of them accomplishing the rebuilding. Up to that point, the rebuilding had not been that successful. Ezra had attempted to rebuild the temple. Only the foundations had been, had been laid. And... Uh, so he knew how, uh, imp how important that was. This is understanding the times. So I'm saying here, he imitates the sons of Issachar. Who, who, who knows the story of Issachar? You, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it. The sons of Issachar. This is one of the groups who joined David's army at Hebron to greatly increase the size and might of the army. So first of all, protect him against Saul and the surrounding enemies, but also to help effectuate the transfer of power from Saul to David. It's the other tribal members who had seen the need to do this, but the sons of Issachar really understood. They understood that there was a transition that was taking place, and that understanding was an understanding of God moving to move things in a di different direction into a different season. Understanding the times means that you understand the times that you live in and that you understand what you need to do to respond to those times. And I'm going to ask the question later. We here at CCC are in a time of tra transition now. And we need to really explore whether we understand the times we're in and also understand what we need to do. That's what understanding the times. So, so let's read that scripture. Go to First Chronicles. First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And let me go there. So here, let me start reading at... Uh, First Chronicles uh, 12, verse 23. We won't read all of this, but let me read uh, 23. It says, now these were the members of the divisions. And they're talking about divisions of the families, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel uh, who operated in divisions when it came to wartime that were equipped for war and came to, to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. Uh, remember, David was God's anointed, and those who understood this joined with him. And, uh, and so what follows is a listing of those tribal members who came and joined with David and David's army. And let's look at 4, 24. 
talks about of the sons of Judah bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. And then let's drop down to 29 of the sons of Benjamin. This is, this is important because Benjamin, Saul is out of the house of Benjamin. So these were relatives of Saul, 3,000. And in parenthesis, you'll see there, until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Uh, but the other one I want you to see that's important and which prompts this whole discussion is verse 32. And of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. And uh, I'm just going to read this other one. I'm going to come back to this. 33, the one that follows is of uh, Zebulun. There were 50,000 who went out to battle. These were experts in war with all and knew all weaponry of war. Stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. So Zebulun were wealthy and they were the warriors. And I, I mentioned... Those three, because three of the tribes, especially in battle, moved together. Judah would be the lead. They were they carried the uh, they were like the 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 the, the royal uh, banner carriers. Next to them was Issachar, and they that was a tribe uh, of, of of Torah, the the Torah tribe. Judah understood sound and so they moved first. Issachar they understood the times and they could interpret the word of God in time and they were connected to the next uh, tribe that Zebulun this was a wealthy tribe because provisions for the journey and the supply for victory were very important and you can see at uh, Chronicles verse 23 12 33 that they were also the professional warriors. So these three would move together. And Iskar, for those of you who don't remember, that was the ninth son of Jacob. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. How do they become of Israel? Where does Israel come in? The name Israel. God changed uh, his name from Jacob to Israel. And so forth. I know all of you know this. You don't remember all of this and so forth. Uh, so, and so Issachar was the ninth son of, of, of Jacob. So they, the sons of Issachar understood the time and season. God's time we're talking about. And they understood that one season was ending. That's the reign of Saul. And a new, new season was beginning. The reign of King David. And they knew what side of the season one should be with. Now, there's a prophetic quality to their understanding, and you have a lot of followers today who call themselves prophets of Issachar, who can, who can read, I mean, I'm talking about the real ones who can read the signs of the time, and they will tell you, if you listen to them, they'll tell you that what times we are in terms of religious seasons, in terms of God's seasons, because God's season and God's calendar is not our calendar. God's time is not our time. Now, there is no time in God, as you know, but, but, but God does move in what we can pigeonhole as seasons because that's the way we see it and so forth. But it takes a prophet to understand 
the seasons and times that God is moving in and so forth. And we've had different waves of, of things, uh, you know, the charismatic movement. We've had this season. We've had the, 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 uh, the uh, my God, the big one. I can't even think of it right now. But we've had a lot of waves and so forth. Sometimes there's a healing season and so forth. And the person who is sensitive and in tune with it, like the sons of Issachar, they know that this season is coming and they can prepare for it. Now, the other thing that having an understanding of the times means is that when you understand the times, you can make money. <laughs> and so, so that's very important. They were workers and they worked and they were able to garner a certain amount of wealth because they understood the time. Now, we understand this in the natural. We understand that when somebody's conceiving an invention, an invention that meets a need, that they understand the times and this is what's needed. This could be in the digital age where they come up with a new, I don't think a month passes when somebody doesn't come up with a new gadget or a new app or a new application or something that, uh, uh, or a new Facebook. I mean, I mean, things become antiquated so quickly now because they come up with, and so on. It's, it's moving so quickly and so forth. And it's accelerating the, uh, the, uh, the growth and spread of knowledge by geometric proportions and so forth and so on. So people who are sensitive who can understand this. Now in, in the stock market, if you're, without, I'm not talking about insider trading, but if you have an understanding of what's going on, you can direct, and there are some people who are that sensitive, they can say, put your money in this and so forth. But that's what we're talking about. It's kind of a prophetic uh, uh, understanding. So anyway, you can prosper when you have an understanding of the times. So he had an understanding of the times. And, and I say this is imitating the sons of Iskar. Let me move on so we can finish this tonight. Second, he showed that he was a man for such a time as this. And uh, remember, the Jews had become the laughing stock in Judea. They were dispirited and they needed a strong leader to help guide them in the rebuilding of the city after the many destructive years of captivity. Nehemiah emerges as one of the rescuers of the Jews. And in this sense, I'm saying he imitates Esther, who rescued the, the Jews in the next book, book over. And you know the story of Esther. We're not gonna, I'm not going to recite that whole story. But, you know, she had become queen, but she was a Jew. And, and uh, you know, she and Mordecai in the story are related. And an edict had gone out by the enemy of the Jews who was close to the king. And it was to kill and annihilate and destroy all the Jews. So look at Esther. All right, quick. Or you can turn to it. I'll read it to you. Uh, and it's, it's in the script, so you'll get this from me tonight. Uh, so Mordecai is saying to Esther at Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Do you think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace? Because that's where she lived, because she was queen, any more than all the other Jews. And the next verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the, for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, and this is what I want you to get, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we know that Esther finally does act and she uh, gets the king to, uh, to, uh, to do what he needs to do to rescind that order and the enemy of the Jews who had perpetrated and orchestrated all this, he ends up being hung. He had set up the gallows for Mordecai 
he ends up getting, getting up. Anyway, you can read this very interesting story there. So Nehemiah showed that he was a man for such a time as this, a man to go and lead and help uh, revitalize uh, and rebuild uh, the uh, uh, walls of Jerusalem and re-energize the, uh, the uh, people of Judea, the Jews. Third, we learn that Nehemiah, one, needed favor with the king because he had an excellent spirit. Where do we hear this in, in the Bible? Huh? From, from, from who? Joseph. Well, yes, but the exact words, it's true of, of, of both those two, but the exact words are applied to Daniel. So go, go to Daniel. You can go to Daniel chapter 6 while I talk about this a little bit. As cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah had distinguished himself as a worker in the inner circles of the palace. Before the king, he had shown himself to be an humble and sincere and diligent worker. So when the king saw Nehemiah's great concern over the stress of the Jews and Nehemiah's fervent desire to help the people, he, the king, was moved to compassion. And he agreed to send and fund Nehemiah on the mission to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. This good fortune happened because Nehemiah imitated Daniel, another Jew in Persia, who had one favor with another Persian king. That was King Darius and rose to prominence in the government. We find this in the book of Daniel at chapter three, uh, chapter six, as I said. And in chapter six, verse three, it says this. This Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the realm, over the entire kingdom, over all the governors and all the other satraps and so forth. So you need to ask yourself, what kind of spirit are you exhibiting? So forth. A different kind of spirit, an uh, excellent spirit. Fourth, Nehemiah was willing to leave his comfort zone to do a greater work. And this is like Moses and Abraham before him. Nehemiah was willing to leave the comfort of the Persian palace and a good job serving the king to undertake a mission to help better his people. And we see the same action taken by Moses who gave up living in another palace. That was the Egyptian palace. He, remember, he lived as the son of Pharaoh and uh, to respond to God's call to deliver uh, the Jews out of bondage. And we see Abraham at age 75 responding to the call of the Lord to leave his country and his family, all of his comfort and what he do, and to go out somewhere that he didn't know anything about and uh, follow a mission uh, that was inspired by God. So uh, Nehemiah imitates the spirit of Moses and Abraham. Fifth, and I'm going to move this up, up along so we can finish tonight. Nehemiah exhibited a great reverence for God's laws and word. And here he's imitating many in the Old Testament, especially the prophets whose lives were guided by God's word. And we see this in Psalm 119.105, which says, your word and you don't have to write this down, You can, because it's, it's it. I'm going to pass it out to you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. These prophets were often ex an example of patience, meaning endurance, for the people. And we are reminded of this in James, our book of James, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, which says, Many brethren, I'm sorry, no, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience, endurance. Number six. Nehemiah did not procrastinate in undertaking his mission. Here, and procrastination 
ruins a lot of things for us. Yes. And so forth. Uh, he is adhering to the dictum in, in James. We're in, you're in, I referred you to the, the book of James. In James chapter 4, verse 13. James chapter 4, verse 13. And again, you're going to have this in the pass out, which tells us to go to now or come now. You who say today or tomorrow. In other words, do it now. So forth. Procrastination is the great thief of time, as you know. And it uh, hinders and actually kills a number of of things that we attempt to do because of hesitation or sluggishness in action. Individuals have seen, and I have seen, good ideas for a product or program launched by someone else who had the same idea, but they moved without delay in implementing their plan. So they got the credit, the benefit, and the money from it, and so forth. And so Nehemiah had planned carefully for four months, thought it out, received permission and support for the plan from the king, and then he immediately set out to undertake the mission. Uh, number seven, Nehemiah maintained a disciplined prayer life. As you know, he prayed twice a day, in the morning and in the, during the day, and in the, he may, it may have been three times, but he certainly played, uh, prayed twice a day. And this is another imitation of Daniel, who maintained a vigorous prayer life. Remember when the king's edict was signed that condemned Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den? This is what Daniel did, and you'll find us at Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It's in here, but I'll read it to you. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God. And this is uh, what's important, as was his custom since early days. In other words, this was a habit. He had a habit of prayer. Nehemiah had a habit of prayer. Prayer life, very important. Uh, now, number eight. Nehemiah chose life and good. As we always say, life is choice driven. So one makes a conscious decision to live and obey God's word, which brings good into their life. This is a conscious choice. I always say that our lives are shaped by the choices we make. And it's so true. And at this time, it is a decision one makes to do good for others. In terms of Nehemiah, I'm talking about, uh, as we see or saw in the case of the Good Samaritan. Nehemiah, Nehemiah made all of the choices that brought good to his life as cupbearer to the king, and he, in turn, did good for the people of Jerusalem. Uh, among other things, he redeemed many out of slavery. This is in the story, but you don't see it unless you read carefully. He tells us towards the end in chapter 6 that when he finds out that some of the Jews had been forced to sell their sons and daughters into slavery to raise money to survive and to pay the king's taxes. And he's saying, you know, I've come and I've rescued. He and his companions came from Persia with quite a bit of money. The king set them up nicely. And they were using that money to redeem some of their brethren out of slavery. And he says that uh, he comes here and he finds that that, that Jews themselves are taking on slaves and, and so forth, and that they were really uh, lending money and grain to the people and charging these usurious interest rates and so forth. They had taken over their lands, done all kinds of things against one another. And uh, uh, Nehemiah reversed this. And you remember from the story what he did. He, he, he had them reverse this and pledge 
to give all of the lands and vineyards and so forth back to the people, which they, played, which they did and so forth. So he is responding positively to Deuteronomy 30, 19, where God says, I called heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, choose life and good that both you and your descendants may live. And nine, uh, Nehemiah was a good leader, manager, and motivator. And you saw this in the whole mission of rebuilding the wall. Here again, he's following in the footsteps and imitating a leadership example of a Moses and Abraham. Like Moses and Abraham did with other great undertakings, Nehemiah was able to rally around or rally the people around a common goal of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. He was able to get them to see this mission as their mission. When dissension arose within the Jewish community, which I was just talking about, <coughs> Nehemiah was able to arbitrate between the opposite interests and bring everyone together to resolve the issue amicably. He was able to do this by the force of his good spirit and his demonstrated love of God and love of the people, which the people saw in him. They saw this good spirit, and so they responded to him, and they were willing to obey and follow him, even the local leaders there. The Apostle Paul sets a similar example in the New Testament and such a good example that he could write himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says this, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. In other words, who so walk as I walk, as we, as you have, have us for a pattern. And 10, I only did 10 of these, Nehemiah had an excellent work ethic. This excellent work ethic was evident by his achievement of the high position of cupbearer to the king. Again, he's imitating examples such as Daniel and Joseph, who each rose to the highest positions of leadership in the non-Jewish nations of Persia and Egypt. You remember Joseph, I mean, Daniel had been placed over all of the other governors and satraps and had become really leader of the whole region just under the king in Persia. And of course, Joseph rose to become prime minister of Egypt. Remember, these were nations that were traditionally hostile to the Jews. These were two Jews rising to the top because of their excellent worth ethic. And of course, they had an excellent spirit and all the other things. And so Nehemiah had that same excellent spirit and work ethic that he was able to inspire the people to have a mind to work. That's from Nehemiah chapter 4. In summary, the takeaway from the story of Nehemiah is that when we find a person or situation in need of help, in need of rebuilding, we go and do likewise. But we start with the walls of our own lives that may need repair, restoration, or rebuilding. And I already, already mentioned that it could be in any number of areas. It could be in our faith wall, our love wall, our prayer wall, our knowledge of the word wall, our obedience to God wall, and so on and so on. And we can also start with our church, which is at a crossroads today and stands in need of restoration and rebuilding. So in, in examining our own lives and the life of Crenshaw Christian Center, let's ask ourselves the 10 questions which come out of the 10 descriptions I just gave of Nehemiah. Number one, do we have an understanding of the times? And do we know what we or Crenshaw Christian Center New York should do? Just a question. Something to think about, and we may come back and discuss this. Are we in the kingdom for such a time as this? Do we have an excellent spirit? 
Are we willing to leave our comfort zone to pursue a goal or work for a greater good? Are we reverent and obedient to God's word? Do we procrastinate and waste time? Do we maintain a regular prayer life? Have we chosen life and good? Are we good leaders, managers, and motivators? And 10, do we have a good work ethic? Or are we sluggish and lazy and are looking for someone else to do the work? So with that, those list of questions, which we may come back to, and I think we will, uh, especially in terms of it as it relates to Crenshaw Christian Center here, in terms of knowing the times and understanding the times. So we're in different times. The whole church is going through change. When I say the church, I'm talking about the body of Christ is going through church. It's going through changes in terms of how it reaches people. Speaking of that digital and gadget age and so forth and so forth, there are so many young people for whom the closest contact they will have with a church message is to what they can see on that little gadget. They are not going to come to, by and large, to a traditional church. I don't mean a church because we're not as traditional as some churches and so forth. Uh, so do we have an understanding of the time? Do we have an understanding of what we need to do here at Crenshaw Christian Center? And I'll come back, back to this and we'll discuss it at another time. But with that, that ends our examination of the book of Nehemiah for the moment. Thanks for listening. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.